Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we're going to learn about trauma informed care. And we're welcoming Laura Freeburn, who's the nurse educator for mental health here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Hello, Laura. Hi, Liz. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We're hoping to not generate any trauma for you today. So <laughs> we'll get started by getting your origin story. Tell us all about where your nursing journey started. My nursing journey started, I guess, as, a, as young as you can be, straight from school to uni. Got a job starting here in the mental health centre when I was 19 as an AIN, and I guess I just never left. Took a couple of years off to go travelling, came back, and then just really found my stride loved education and then started to move into that space and through that had the opportunity to do some work with trauma-informed care here in our health service but recently statewide as well so it's really been really lucky and it's been really exciting. So clinically started straight into acute mental health? Yep, yep. straight into it. I guess most of my background is with adolescent mental health clinically speaking but I've worked across the variety of our um, services here at the Royal that's awesome. And it, like it must be good when you come out as a new grad and you find your niche, your thing that you want to specialise in so early in your career. Yeah, look, I'll be honest with you. Mental health wasn't my initial um, passion. I wanted to do emergency. I wanted to go do Royal Flying Doctor Service, but I wasn't successful. So stayed in mental health where I was already working. And I'm so grateful for that. I think, you know, fate really stepped in and said, no, this is this is your path. This is where you're going to thrive. So I'm really grateful that things worked out the way they did. Sometimes the universe knows more than us, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. We're, we've got a lot to talk about today. So we're going to get straight into it. So your number one is what is trauma-informed care? Yeah, look, I thought this was a really good starting point. Um, I know over recent years there's been a lot more traction around people starting to understand what it is but also wanting to know what is trauma-informed care. And in essence, it's the assumption that anyone that we come in contact with potentially has a history of trauma. It's almost like a universal precaution. We say it's our PPE, basically, um, that it's safer to assume that someone has a history of harm by trauma and that we're able to respond to this in a way that acknowledges that than rather disregard or potentially harm them. I think it's probably useful for us to just have a working definition of trauma. Excellent, Jesse. Thank you for bringing that up because I've certainly spoken to clinicians across the healthcare spectrum and to particularly um, critical care clinicians think of trauma and they think of motor vehicle accidents, head trauma, those kinds of things. And so when I talk about trauma, I kind of break it into the three E's. It's an event that is potentially um, threatening for the person, but really importantly, the way that that person experiences that event. And there's a range of things that can influence that, whether it's developmental stages, previous experiences, um, cultural norms, and those kinds of things. 
and then the effect that that has on the person either short or long term. So it's not necessarily the event itself but it's more so the way that that person experiences that event. The way that we kind of look at this is through the four R's and I'll take a minute to explain this because I think it really helps shift our lens there. The first R of trauma-informed care asks us to realise, realise the widespread impact of trauma. And so when we start to look at the statistics and the prevalence, we know that two in three people have potentially experienced trauma in their life. So that's more than half of the population. And the second R that we have is recognise, recognising signs and symptoms of trauma. So how someone is currently presenting is likely in the context of previous experiences that they've had. And the way that we can start to be able to understand this is understanding that trauma has impacts on people at a neurobiological level. So what do I mean when I'm saying this? I'm talking about things such as the hippocampus shrinks. So this affects memory, learning and attention. The amygdala, our survival response, the function here changes. So this results in a person being more likely to react to triggers, experience emotional extremes and have difficulty being able to regulate their emotions. The prefrontal cortex is also impacted. This has reduced activity. Um, This results in survival responses being triggered in the absence of danger. So we can understand that triggers are actually like a physiological reaction that's happening within a person there. There's also changes in the reward pathways. So survivors may appear less motivated and anticipate less pleasure from different activities. So it really helps us then look at that second R of recognising how someone is currently presenting is in the context of previous experiences and so I really like to ask people instead of saying to someone what is wrong with you we might consider thinking instead what's happened to you and what's happening inside of you at the moment the third R is respond so now that we have this knowledge of realizing and recognizing which it really once we have this understanding it takes us five seconds to take a step back and think okay well I know trauma is widespread and I can see that how this person is presenting is likely in the context of previous experiences. So how am I now choosing to respond in in my individual practice, but also I think as an organisation, we have the responsibility to respond as well to ultimately then the fourth R is resist re-traumatisation. And to me, this is really important because health services that are designed to help people actually cause a lot of harm to people as well and I think this is where trauma-informed care is so important and I think you know not just acknowledging that mental health has restrictive practices but those restrictive practices are kind of there wherever we go in healthcare services as well. So when you're talking about that kind of um, be careful you know resist doing something that's going to cause someone more harm it can be quite hard for something that is someone's everyday normal practice to think, I need to be more mindful about informed consent. I need to be more mindful about, I'm just going to come up behind you and wrap this blanket around you. You know, like um, I have to, you know, feel your abdomen. Is that okay? Do you feel comfortable for me to lift up your shirt? Like some things that we might just be doing as an everyday practice for someone who's experienced trauma can be, you know, a hugely powerless overwhelming, triggering experience, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the phrase that always comes back to my mind is, our everyday is this person's worst day. Yeah. And I think it's so easy for us as clinicians to just, it's just normal. What we do is normal and things are just expected. And to kind of this framework, trauma-informed care, the critiques that I've read of it 
is it saying it? This is nursing 101. This yeah. isn't anything new. And that's what I love about it is that it's not asking us to do something extra. It's asking us to examine what we do and how we do it. So I say to, when I teach people about trauma-informed care, I do firstly apologise that I'm not giving them a list of magical interventions that's going to cure all their patients, but it's going to provide a framework that underpins not what you do, but how you choose to do it. We need people to do more of those great fundamentals uh, and that then naturally that will, will align itself with the trauma-informed care kind of framework. Absolutely, because people don't remember what care they received, but they remember how you made them feel. Yeah, Great. Okay, so Laura, your second point is that there are five principles to the trauma-informed care framework. Can you share those with us, please? Absolutely. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, part of the four R's is that we respond and we resist re-traumatisation. And it's all very well and good to say, I'll respond to resist re-traumatisation, but how do I do that? And that's where I think the five principles are really helpful. And they are safety, choice, collaboration, trust, and empowerment. And again, very simple, very straightforward. And the chances are is that we're already embedding a lot of these principles in our practice already. Things such as introducing ourselves, providing expectations, you know, that's building trust and find, finding that psychological safety. So when I talk about safety, I'm talking not just about physical safety, which I think generally as a health service, we do really well as far as, you know, procedures, policies, risk reporting, fire exits, those kinds of things. But what's really important is psychological safety. So does that person actually feel safe in their environment? Do they feel welcome? Those kinds of things where certain populations historically haven't been welcome in healthcare services. When I talk about choice, I want to acknowledge that um, a lot of choice is taken away in healthcare, not just in um, mental health services where people might be um, under the Mental Health Act for their treatment, but I think the general way that the Western medical model is set up, a lot of people are, yes, doctor, yes, nurse, whatever you say, that kind of true collaboration doesn't exist as much as it could be. When we talk about collaboration as one of the principles, obviously we want to be collaborating with the individual, their families, their carers, but I also think collaboration looks at, um, at an organisational level, are we collaborating with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities when it comes to healthcare delivery? Are we collaborating with our culturally and linguistically diverse communities? Are we collaborating with our NGOs, with our primary care? It, that really provides the opportunity to be truly trauma-informed care. Trust is another really important principle as well, acknowledging that the majority of trauma that people do experience are in personal relationships that they have as well. So that trust is very much fractured. And empowerment, this is where we're looking at, you know, aligning with recovery-orientated care, building knowledge and skills and focusing on that shared decision-making as well. So... These five principles really do influence each other. They do overlap. But in saying that, if you take one of these principles away, then the others start to fall down. So I ask you guys to think about a time where you've had your choice taken away. Yeah. And it's, it's around really simple things like, you know, I know myself when I've been in hospital, like they often give you your dinner at 5.30 or 6. I don't normally eat until 7.30, 8. You know, like, so it, you, you're just literally at the mercy of whatever the routine is, you know, like, no, you will have your bath now or, you know, and it, and I understand why the systems have to happen that way, 
But if you're someone where having your choice around taken away from you is very triggering around power, a previous traumatic event, then, you know, you can go into a response you're not even aware of and, you know, be acting out or causing disruption and we need to keep a more open mind about what is actually going on for this person how has their past events really, you know, how are they being reflected and what they're doing in their current situation here with us as an inpatient? Absolutely. Because when we provide choice, we then start to empower the person. We can build trust. They start to feel safe as well. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that there are small choices, even when it feels like we can't offer big choices, such as, would you like to go home today? <laughs> Those kinds of things. But small choices, such as, do you shower in the morning or the or the evening? You know, I need to do an ECG on you. Did you want to have your dinner first? And I'll come back afterwards. You know, where can we provide the small choice? But also, where are the opportunities where we can provide really important, significant choices, such as, who do you want involved in your care? Let's not assume that their next of kin from an admission that they had five years ago is still the most appropriate person to be their next of kin. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, the assumption thing is a big factor in that, in, in choice. And I've, I, I've been in the situation most of my clinical career where it's been in intensive care. So you're left to make a lot of assumptions. Um, one of the key factors in that has been I'm very aware of the fact that I'm a large male nurse that will be providing care to whoever I'm, I'm allocated for that shift. That may be um, a young mental health patient who's had an intentional overdose, young female, where you've like taking a trauma-informed care approach but really just common sense in this situation that this is someone that is likely to have experienced trauma. The assumption could be uh, I shouldn't look after her because I'm a male. But there's been a number of times where we've had the opportunity to talk to family and they've actually said, oh, no, she's, she's been in this situation before, is absolutely fine with males, actually feels quite safe. Mm. So, but then there's other, other situations where that might not be the case. So I guess it's trying to inform that choice through whatever sort of supports we've got in, in those situations. And then I guess when there is an opportunity um, for particularly younger females um, in care, in ICU, when they're awake and saying, look, um, are you comfortable with me looking after you? I can uh, get someone else to support you with any sort of intimate cares that are needed, but um, are you comfortable with me delivering the rest of the care for you? So it's a, it's yeah, it's tricky. It's not as like you said. There's there's the big choices that we often uh, that are restricted. So it's moving down that ladder of going what what power can I give this person in their care, isn't it? Yeah, and I think you've really nailed it there. It's giving them that power, that control, whereas survivors of trauma often report when they come to hospital, it's losing that choice, losing that control, feeling unsafe that then leads to them into having a trauma response and being re-traumatised as well. So that's where these five principles, as simple as they sound, actually go such a long way into helping that person take some of that power back. And, you know, we talk a lot about the inherent power dynamics that's there between clinician and patient. So really good way to address that. And I guess it's about not making an assumption because it's been okay for the first 99 patients doesn't mean that it's okay for everybody and for us to constantly check in, like Jesse was saying, is it okay that that I as a male is looking after you? Or me saying, you know, like when I was a social worker, saying to people, have you ever had contact with a social worker before and what was that like? Mm. Because if people had, it wasn't always 
in a beneficial way. It could have been in a very regulatory, you know, legal, statutory way. And so you you want to have that understanding so that if the person is afraid, if they're avoiding you, you know what that's about and say, you know, like how can I give you some choice, power, say, in, uh, around this in, interaction? And I think that um, to me that example that you gave, Liz, is really tapping into that psychological safety there, just kind of acknowledging that, if you have had contact before, maybe it didn't go so well and I'm really here to give you an experience that's in your best interest that's going to help you with your health outcomes. Yeah, great. Okay, so number three, can you tell us about why we need to pay a special attention to trauma-informed care with our First Nations people and their communities? Absolutely. And before I get stuck into this Um, this aspect. I really want to acknowledge my limitations to be able to fully speak on this topic as a white European descent woman. I am open to learn and continue learning on this journey here. And here's what I've learned so far is that trauma-informed care very much acknowledges the unique experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with the historical and ongoing impacts of colonisation and racism in Australia. So, As a direct result of colonisation in Australia, trauma has been experienced in the form of violence, racism, loss of culture and land and the forced removal of children, appreciating that the stolen generation was happening up until 50 years ago. So we are still providing care to people who are survivors of the stolen generation, who are their children, their grandchildren. Uh, So very important for us to be able to realise and recognise this. And we know a lot more now about intergenerational trauma as well. So when I talk about intergenerational trauma, this is trauma that's been passed down through generations from that first generation of survivors. And it's through, and it's passed down in two ways. Um, it can be passed down through children witnessing the pain and hurt of their parents um, and the impact that that has on their own well-being. We also know more now about epigenetics where trauma can create changes in the way that our DNA is read and transcribed. And so what we see as a result of the historical and ongoing impacts of colonisation, of racism, of intergenerational trauma, is that actually 47% of the gap in health is attributable to institutional racism, interpersonal racism and intergenerational trauma. And we see this as having a direct impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through suicide rates being twice that of non-Indigenous Australians reduced life expectancy of birth, so that gap in health, that mental and substance use disorders are the leading cause of burden of disease for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and that there's also higher rates of discharge against medical advice, up to seven times higher, and a higher likelihood of not accessing a healthcare provider when needed. And I spoke before about um, healthcare services historically not being welcome to some communities, and I'm talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when we go back through the policy areas there. So trauma-informed care is really looking at recognising the unique experiences of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians and responding in a way that is culturally capable and safe. So this really is asking us to look at different and specific approaches as to how care is delivered with a focus on recovery and healing from trauma. Cultural safety very much aligns here, but I think maybe cultural safety is a topic for a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, good point. So uh, let's let's pull that apart really practically. So we know that there are all these very specific risks for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia. 
We know that um, their engagement with health, you know, it's hard to get them to appointments. It's hard to keep them as inpatients. So when we think about direct things on the bedside nurse, I guess it's about really paying attention to do they have any specific needs? Am I speaking in a language that is accessible to them? Have I involved the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health liaison officer? Um, am I making sure that any significant kin is bedside? You know, we've recently done a podcast um, with Arnie Janet on sorry business. It's really important to listen to that. But I guess one of the big take-home message was, messages for me was engaging the Indigenous, you know, health liaison officer really early was critical to the overall success of that inpatient or outpatient um, stay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is incredibly important. And, you know, the way that I see it is just really needing to understand that people have different definitions of health, different experiences of health and different expectations of what health and healthcare should look like. And I think that's where engaging um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, communities, um, liaison officers are so important. But what I would say that another thing that the nurse or the clinician can do is take a moment and examine your culture. What are your attitudes, assumptions, expectations, biases, belief, particularly surrounding health and healthcare, and examine what that looks like compared to the people around you, compared to the people that you're providing care for. And so that's where we're able to then start to look at opportunities for us to be trauma-informed care, to provide a healthcare service that is specific and unique and meets the needs of every population, particularly our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And for some First Nations people, every time they have come into contact with big bureaucracies predominantly, you know, controlled by white people, it has ended in absolute disaster. And so we've got to really demonstrate in every single aspect of our care how this experience not only needs, you know, not only should be different, it needs to be different so that we can start to change the narrative and demonstrate, you know, our sorrow of what's happened in the past and for us all to make a commitment to be different in the future. Yeah, absolutely. This one mould doesn't fit everyone. Okay, so I obviously am involved in the staff wellbeing here. So I'm particularly interested in your number four point, which is trauma-informed care really has to be applied to everyone and that includes healthcare professionals. Absolutely. And I think this is uh, also really important to me as well, that trauma-informed care isn't just about people who access services, but it's about the people who deliver services as well. And I think a really good way to consider this is that we have a vulnerable population providing care to a vulnerable population. And so what this means is that nurses and clinicians, but I want to say nurses in particular, have their own experiences. So if you remember the statistic that I said before, two and three people have a, um, experienced a traumatic event. That's the people who are delivering care as well. And then at work, we are continually exposed to stressful and traumatic events in our daily practice. And so exposure to these kinds of experiences can result in things such as vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue or burnout. Now, I do want to acknowledge that, um, you know, people who sign up for a career in healthcare don't expect it necessarily to be a walk in the park, um, that we 
do sign up, you know, expecting to respond to stressful situations, critical incidents, those kinds of things. But it's when we have the appropriate supports and environments, when we feel safe, when we trust our colleagues, trust our team, trust our management and our leadership, when we feel empowered to be able to practice and to work at the top of our scope, when we're able to effectively collaborate in a team, that that then mitigates the effect of some of these stressful um, events that we're exposed to. But I also want to acknowledge that, you know, it has come to be that vicarious trauma is almost an expected component of good nursing care. That, you know, we, empathetic engagement, we're all taught about this as a clinician in developing the therapeutic relationship. And that really does leave us quite exposed as clinicians when we take on a part of a person's story, that there is a lot of emotional labour that's involved in our job that's not necessarily on the role description or on the university degree when we sign up or anything. Um, but empathy is so important because it does enable that compassionate care, but it does put the nurse at risk of being traumatised themselves, leading to that inevitable risk of vicarious trauma for the clinician. So I think what I'm trying to say here is really be mindful of your colleagues that if we realise the widespread trauma and recognise the signs and symptoms, that if we do see a colleague who is maybe avoiding certain situations, might be late to work all the time, you've noticed a change in their clinical decision-making or something. And I'm certainly guilty of this myself. When I was a new practitioner, I just said, oh, they're lazy, oh, they're avoiding it, they just want to get out of it. But now I reflect on those moments and I think, I don't think they were okay. I think they were really struggling because mm. that's not like them. And if we're able to then connect, build that trust, provide a safe space, then we're better able to support them as well. So I think this needs further exploration because we don't want people, you know, our listeners going, oh, my stars, I'm about to be massively harmed because I've decided to join the healthcare workforce. Yeah. There is a meme that I've seen bounce around that nursing is microdosing trauma until you get a mental illness. And I, I, that's the dark end of it, but I think that misses a lot of the protective factors that you found in your PhD work that actually offset a lot of that. But one thing I really wanted to catch was this, the idea of the difference between empathy and sympathy yeah. and how important it is, and I say this to our young novice practitioners particularly, is don't write yourself into other people's stories. Avoid that. Like empathy is caring about the person and their experience, but recognizing that it's their experience. It's not your experience. And I've had this conversation. My daughter's just about to finish her four-year four um, mid and nursing degree. And the number of times I've said to her, did that actually happen to you though? Like, I had a terrible day. Were you actually providing care or is this sort of secondary stuff you've taken on in the tea room? These sorts of things, did it happen to you? But, and the answer is invariably no, but it's very easy to kind of write ourselves into those stories and take on all this micro-dosed trauma that actually wasn't even ours in the first place. Mm. It's a, it's, I think there's a developmental component to this. I say this over and over. Like as a new social worker, I cried probably every day for the first two years of my career. I think lots of nurses, lots of junior doctors, lots of allied health, you know, everybody is really overwhelmed and I guess the big key for me is I think how do we develop skills or create insights to think maybe this isn't for me. Like maybe this clinical area is not for me and that's okay. You can go and work somewhere else 
or maybe um, this profession isn't isn't for me and that's okay because particularly as a nurse you have a number of great transferable skills but for the majority of us you know Jesse and I've worked in critical care for a really long time there's a developmental component to this where you know we have to learn like what we do take on what is ours what is our patients how do we give without giving of ourselves completely um, how do we experience it without making every event? And I, I've always lived by a Chinese proverb that says, you can't prevent the birds of sorrow from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. And, you know, that took, I think that probably took me about seven years to work that skill out. And it doesn't mean that you, you still don't ever cry at work or there aren't things that overwhelm you. Of course there is, but it's about understanding yourself like what is your trauma background what has happened to you what do you think are your points of vulnerability equally what are your points of strength how did you recover from that previous trauma you know what's left a little bit of a scar or a wound that you might need to protect in your current workforce and what are the things that actually really invigorate you bring you joy bring you meaning bring you purpose and how do you highlight that so I think it's about really what we're saying to people is be aware of this and then try and stay ahead of it. Put Have skills, resources, people, um, you know, start to develop strategies about what you're going to do if this happens to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you guys have made some really excellent points here as far as like we don't want to put people off coming yeah. into a career in healthcare. And, you know, that really made me reflect that while a lot of trauma-informed care does feel really doom and gloom that if bad things happen, then you've got a bad trajectory, all those kinds of things, you know, my next point, which I have as a final point for a reason, is that, you know, we have the opportunity to learn and grow and develop, not just clinically, not just professionally, but also as individuals by going through these experiences, having the opportunity to reflect and learn more about ourselves. Terrific. So what a beautiful segue straight into your number five is that people can and frequently do recover from trauma. Absolutely. And I really want to emphasise, while it's important to understand that the impact that trauma can have, it is equally important to understand that people can and do recover who have had traumatic experiences and that people can thrive despite having these experiences as well. And this aligns a lot with the recovery model that we work with in mental health. And it's really important for us as clinicians to have that hope for our, not just for our own well-being, but really importantly for the people that we're providing care for to let them know that they can and do recover. Because a lot of um, survivors of trauma and people who have recovered really articulate how important the relationships that they had with clinicians were on putting them on that journey to recovery so kind of you know jumping back to my previous point about the impact that it can have on staff if staff then are able to see that people do recover despite you know being exposed to whatever then I think that then helps with the healing for all parties moving forward however important to acknowledge that everyone's recovery path will look different and for some, they may never re reach that recovered destination. It'll be more of an ongoing journey. But by practicing care that is trauma-informed, 
person-centered and recognizes that person's lived experience, we're able to empower consumers to then be able to participate in decision-making that's meaningful to them, being sensitive to their individual needs, their safety, their preferences and their well-being. So I guess, you know, it's that whole thing where we've kind of got to practice what we preach, haven't we? You know, we have to be mindful of our patients history, we've got to be mindful of our own history. We've got to be mindful how we treat every single individual and think about choice and power, etc. And then we have to be mindful of our own choices, our own power. And I guess that's one thing that I kind of worry for about how easily some people give their power away. You know, like I no longer have any control or agency over my life. So I always say to people, even if it's just small things, you know, reminding yourself, like what was your choice that that you came to work today, what you wore, you know, did you have a shower, what you weight, how you got here. You know, there are a number of choices that you've still made that are still yours. And I think, I think that that can be really important, important for us to share with our patients about where they've got a realm of control, their agency of control, and then for ourselves. Absolutely. And it just makes me think the other day I was on the wards and I was talking to one of the patients on the ward and he was expressing to me some of his concerns. And I'm like, well, the doctor told you that he's going to see you this afternoon. So I really think that you should tell him some of this stuff. He's like, oh, no, I don't want to do all of the talking. And I said to him, this, I want, like I tried my best to be able to empower him to say, you know, this is your care. This is your recovery. I want to give you the reassurance that we absolutely, as your treating team, want to be able to hear what you have to say. And it's so important. And I said to him, we don't know how to help you unless you tell us what it is the help that you need. And I know it sounds so obvious, but I think it's important to acknowledge that even if before we meet the patient, that they already have that level of disempowerment Mm. before we do anything. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to attempt to summarise this. So if I make any mistakes, by all means, jump in. I'm sure you're going to nail it. No pressure. Okay, so let's start actually before our five points, just summarising what is trauma. And you gave us the three E's. So a trauma is an event that potentially threatens us, our safety, our psychological well-being, our emotional well-being, our health. And then the second E is it's how we experience that event. And the third is what is the effect of that. And this is what's really important with trauma because something that I find a challenge, someone else might find completely traumatising, another person might find as completely benign. So it's, it's not, we can't just say this is a traumatic event. We have to know what, it, what that event, how it threatened that person, what their experience was and if there was an effect for them. So now we'll move to your lovely succinct five points that we need to be aware of around trauma-informed care. Number one, what is trauma-informed care? And you gave us the four R's. One, realise how widespread the impact of trauma is across the general population. That two in every three people have experienced some form of trauma across their life. Number two of that is recognise signs of symptoms of previous trauma and know that this sits at a neurobiological level so that people might have Um, really difficult memories, problems with learning, problems problems with attention, and they may react or have triggers 
or difficulty regulating their behaviour as a result of that past trauma. And that some of these people even have difficulty experiencing pleasure in a way that the rest of us do. So instead of saying, you know, what's going on, you know, understand what's happened, what's the context for this person. Your third R is respond. And we need to respond to this individually and organisationally and I think as a community too, to just have this real sensitivity that everybody has a story, we don't know what that is and so we've got to be responsive to the individual in front of us. And the fourth R is we have to resist re-traumatising this person. So we do that by um, carrying these informed cares with us and by being really sensitive to constantly, um, I guess, going back to being responsive to the person in front of us. And then you gave us the five principles, which I think help us individually and as an organisation to resist re-traumatisation. So moving to number two, the five principles of the trauma-informed care framework. One is safety. That's physical safety, psychological safety, uh, psychosocial safety, emotional safety. And some of that can really be, I guess, mitigated by even introducing people, being really aware of consent when people are on the ward or in our care. The second is choice. And remembering that in health, we take a lot of really fundamental choices around, around eating, when people shower. What are the really micro things that we can give back to people so that they've got their own choice? Do they want to wear their own pyjamas, bring in their own doona, etc.? Number three is collaboration. How do we make the patient and their family or significant others part of the team? And what is the role of their community or uh, uh, the NGOs or other practitioners who are involved in their cares at home. And we need to think about collaboration, particularly in relation to all vulnerable populations. That includes our First Nations people and people where English may be their second language, people who have come from, you know, refugees and have a huge uh, potential for trauma in their past. The fourth one is trust. And remembering that for a lot of people who have a trauma background – that this trust was broken at a very personal relationship level. And so building trust and relationship can be hard for some people. And and what can we do at the bedside to help re-establish that? And the fifth principle is empowerment, shared decision-making, helping people find their voice, helping people be in control of their own bodies and their own health. And uh, I guess we've got to always think about Small choices, significant choices, and Jesse gave the lovely example as, you know, as a male, does he need to check in with female patients or um, however people identify and us just constantly checking in with the patient in front of us. Three is that trauma-informed care may be significantly different for people from First Nations. And you spoke about recognising just the long-term harm that has happened to our First Nations people as a result of colonisation violence, racism, loss of culture and forced removal of children. You spoke about intergenerational trauma and that affects two ways. One is is that we have a whole generation of First Nations people who have been exposed to the previous harm uh, and violence of their ancestors and then we also need to appreciate epigenetics that sometimes the DNA – can be recorded and transferred differently in people who have have, um, experienced trauma. 
Number four is that trauma-informed care absolutely has to be for everyone. And if we know that if two in every three people have been infected by trauma, that means that our health workforce fits into that category. How do we be mindful of ourselves, our own trauma backgrounds, and how are we aware of things that can happen to us in the workforce? How do we seek out support? How do we uh, have a real knowledge and a care and concern and compassion for ourselves? Number five, the big take-home message with this is that everybody has the potential to recover from trauma and that we all need to um, utilise every support, every tool possible in order to take care of ourselves and to act fast. So if you think you're in trouble, seek help early and have a number of preventative measures across your lifespan to look after yourself. How'd I go? Absolutely nailed it. That was quite a long summary. Um, Laura? Should we summarise this? Yeah, we almost need to. <laughs> You've done a great job in summarising that, Liz. I'm absolutely blown away. I could obviously talk about trauma-informed care for a full two days, if you let me, maybe even longer. Uh, but the one thing that I just wanted to add was that trauma-informed care, while nurses have the opportunity to be leaders in this space, I wanted to acknowledge that it's not just for nurses it's for every health discipline but also I think it doesn't stop at healthcare services either I think reflecting on some of the key takeaways that we've had today every service can be trauma-informed care whether it's schools correctional services first responders I think when we're united in this framework and this approach then I think we're just going to have such profound effects at a community level yeah so take it home with us as well yeah absolutely Beautiful. Perfect way to end. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, guys. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.